Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosser. It gives me great pleasure now to welcome to Viewpoints for the first time, Chris Flynn. He's an Australian author, editor and critic. Chris is the author of The Glass Kingdom and A Tiger in Eden, which was shortlisted for the Commonwealth Book Prize. His fiction and non-fiction have appeared in many places, The Age, The Australian, Griffith Review, etc. He's conducted interviews for the Paris Review and is a regular presenter in literary festivals across Australia. Chris, he comes from Ireland, Northern Ireland, lives in Phillip Island next to a penguin sanctuary. And his latest novel, Mammoth, published by University of Press, Queensland. Uh, it's uh, 32.99 and C format paperback. Welcome to Viewpoints, Chris Flynn. Hello, Henry. How are you? I'm very well. Firstly, let me congratulate you uh, on such a, a panoramic uh, career in the field of um, public speaking and, and, and literature. Well, you've got to do what it takes to pay the bills, I suppose. That's true. That's a good philosophy uh, that we could all share. Now, Mammoth, uh, I always get the authors to give the thumbnail review of a sketch summary of their books. So tell us, um, Mammoth, uh, what it's all about uh, from your perspective. Right. It's a tricky one to uh, summarise, but I'll give it a go. Um, It is set the night before a natural history auction in New York in 2007. Um, this was a real auction. They take place every year in New York. Um, and in my novel, all of the exhibits that are going to go under the hammer at the auction are the night before talking to each other, explaining how they died, when they died, who dug them up, why they were dug up, and what's been happening to them since. And they are mostly the fossils of um, dead, obviously obviously dead, um, <laughs> megafauna, uh, megafauna and dinosaurs. So at the 2007 auction, there was the um, tusk of a, a mammoth, and he's our main narrator. There was the skull of a Tyrannosaurus batar, which is the Mongolian cousin to Tyrannosaurus rex. There was a prehistoric penguin. There was the severed hand of an Egyptian mummy. There were dire wolves, uh, prehistoric sharks' teeth, um, uh, meteorites, all sorts of bizarre ephemera. And so they essentially tell their stories um, chatting to each other, interrupting each other, um, disputing each other's stories, and in so doing, um, I'm able to go back through history and look at the end of the Ice Age and the turn of the um, the end of the um, 1800s, or the start of the 1800s, and the French the end of the French Revolution, the beginning of the Second Irish Revolution, the Lewis and Clark expedition, and um, see how these creatures have been observing our activities and how we've been commodifying their bones um, for hundreds if not thousands of years. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense and it and it's 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 interesting in that um, there's a lot of um, social issues including environmental issues uh, that uh, that the mammoth and uh, and his mates uh, talk about throughout the book. It's it's uh, it's not just a fantasy, is it? No, um, it's a, it's quite a. I mean, it, it is a humorous book, and we'll probably talk about that later. But it it is also quite a serious look at mm. um, man how mankind has um, influenced climate change from the end of the ice age onwards, um, and uh, looks at slavery, um, ownership, um, and the determination the to 
um, show that we are lords of the natural kingdom uh, instead of being part of the natural kingdom. American exceptionalism, um, a, a bit of a revolution and the destruction of um, the Native Americans even at some point. So to, it does look at quite a, quite a panoply of human activities um, squeezed into the book, um, observed by these, uh, these creatures who are constantly shaking their heads at us. Yes, even though it's fiction, you've done an incredible amount of research. I mean, you start with uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, in in your your introduction, but there is so much in there. Uh, the amount of work for a, a somewhat partially fictional uh, novel um, is quite quite an amazing amount of uh, focus. Uh, why that focus, Chris? Yeah, I mean, it's it's essentially a non-fiction book mm. with a fiction with a fictional framework um, to make it a a bit more palatable. I mean, I was always interested in history as a as a kid, and you know, you're a, you're a headmaster. You know that history can sometimes be taught quite dryly to kids, and and it's quite hard to hook them on history. Oh, don't remind so, me. Don't remind me, Chris. <laughs> so I, I wanted to portray history in a, maybe a slightly more accessible way, um, and it is exhaustively researched. Um, I spent six years um, writing. The book, but I say writing the book, most of that time was actually just involved in research, um, where I would go down internet rabbit holes as far as I could to explore a topic, um, come up against a brick wall, and then um, have to order obscure, out-of-print um, books online, um, some of them quite old, to then explore the topics further, um, go back to the primary sources, as it were. Um, and there was an awful lot of that um, going on during those years. And even when I started to write the manuscript, I would come up against little um, little points where I thought, oh, there's a gap in my knowledge here. I really need to stop before I go mm. any further and e- explore um, the origin of um, bourbon distilleries or whatever it was that I had to <laughs> come up against. Did you ever consider giving up? Um I considered not even doing it in the first place um, <laughs> the, because, as you say, I, I had heard about the auction um, yes. and I thought that was very interesting that we were selling these uh, bones at auction and they were fought over by natural history museums and celebrities um, determined to, I mean, the Tyrannosaurus skull was bought by the Hollywood actor Nicolas Cage um, to put on, on the wall of his house to show how macho he was. Um, and Separately to that, I had read um, some of Thomas Jefferson's correspondence from um, 1800, mm. where a week after the American election, it used to take ages to do to conduct an election back then because we didn't have the, the modern equipment. So the election lasted for weeks and weeks and weeks, and it was over in December 1800. And Jefferson didn't; the votes weren't tallied for months, so he didn't know that he'd won the election until February of 1801. Mm. But in the meantime, he was writing letters to um, groups of pioneers asking them to go out into the Kentuckian wilderness and source some mammoth bones for him, or if they could find one, a live specimen, because they didn't know whether they were still alive out there or not. And I thought this was fascinating that he was Mm. obsessed with the mammoth. He basically wanted to prove to the Europeans that America was this powerful, great place. I mean, that's the sort of origin of the Republican um, notion of, of greatness, which still plagues them today. Um, and 
So I just thought there's there's an interesting story here, but I couldn't figure out how to link them for quite a long time. And so, and I also just thought, I'm not sure if I have the wherewithal and skill and maturity to be able to um, tackle this. And I assumed it would be a novel I might um, come at a little bit later in life. Mm. Um, uh, and yeah. Yeah, that, what fascinates me is um, you've got three novels, The Glass Kingdom, A Tiger in Eden, and now Mammoth. In, 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 in many ways, they're very, very different uh, books, aren't they? Uh, they, they could easily be written by three different people. That way. Yeah, they could be written by three different people. It's, and one of my friends, he's a, a mechanic in Leon Gatha, and he doesn't really read, but he's read my books. Yep. And and every time he reads one, he's like, "How can this be you? Uh, this is you again, and you're and it's a completely different style and story from the last time." But the, I always wanted to to do that as an author. Ever since I was a kid, when I had aspirations to be a writer, I there, I wanted to work in lots of different genres. But the publishing industry doesn't generally encourage that. They try to um, funnel you towards um, one genre, and you can easily get pigeonholed. So I'm sort of trying to make my brand um, to be the unexpected <laughs> in, order to, in order to allow myself to explore lots of different genres. Um, and it's, not, it's a bit of a challenge, um, but um, so far, as long as the books are enjoyable, I figure I might get away with it. Mm, well, well I have no doubt that you are. I guess uh, being true to yourself is important in your work. Yes, that's right. I mean... I'm not very. I'm the world's worst liar. Um, um, I I can't lie, and that is um, a good quality, but also sometimes gets me in trouble. <laughs> and, and 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 so as an author, I I just can't pretend that I you know to be something that I'm not. I don't want to just write um, uh, your sort of standard commercial thrillers about a. Uh, a man who returns to his hometown and, and investigates a murder from the past that he's obliquely linked to. Uh, I just don't want to do those kind of things. There's already enough of those out there. Mm. Um, I'm more yeah. interested in just exploring ideas and creating novels of ideas. And yes, they may be a little bit left field and um, you know raise the eyebrow when you hear about them. But um, that's the way I um, enjoy life and, and the way I read. So it's um, it's very hard for me to not do it that way. Oh, I, I commend you for it. Will you take a short break? Uh, Chris, can you hold the line? Sure. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grossack, and I'm having a discussion with Chris Flynn, author, critic, uh, and editor talking about his latest novel, Mammoth, which is uh, published by University of Queensland Press right now, and it's recommended retail price thirty two ninety nine. Welcome back, Chris. Thank you, Henry. Chris, um, we're talking about uh, just before the break. Uh, I guess authenticity and true to yourself in that you write books in very many different ways, genres. Um, what does that tell us about you? Tells you that I have lived a very eclectic life. Probably, <laughs> um, I um, I've done a lot of different jobs in my life. Um, I don't have 
a degree. Um, a lot of people have been reading this book and assuming I have a degree in paleontology. Um, I don't have that, and I don't even have a degree in creative writing or a degree in anything at all. I did go to university, but I didn't last very long. Um, what I've happened? That, um, yeah, I've got that uh, Irish um, rebellious nature that doesn't like having to do what I'm told. Um, so <laughs> I would have, I would have been a terrible student in your school. I would have been terrible. You would have uh, had me in your office constantly, probably. Um, so I have had I, to adapt. I left Ireland when I was 18. I'm 48 now, um, and I have. I'm very good at adapting to new environments and new circumstances. Moved around a lot. I lived in France for a couple of years. I didn't speak English for a few years during that time. Um, I lived in America at various times, lived in Asia. Um, so I've just lived one of those, I guess, old-fashioned writer's lives where you work a lot of jobs and you um, are kind of writing on the side, uh, trying to make it work. I don't have a very modern writer's life where you know, a lot of writers today will go to university, do the, do the degree in writing and editing, and then you know, move into um, the publishing world after that. And um, I've got one of those old-fashioned author bios that it says he worked in a bunch of factories and cafes, and I worked as a, um, a sumo wrestling referee for a travel, on a traveling fair and uh, in a pillow-stuffing factory, all sorts of bizarre jobs. So perhaps that um, has, has lent itself to me being an eclectic writer. Mm, mm. Now, one of the things I never do with authors is go through their books chapter and verse. We want people to read it, but there's a couple of parts I thought I might just get you to elaborate on, and I'm sure you'll remember mm -hmm. these. I'll just read out a couple of sentences. You might put them in context. The book is more than just about mammoths and prehistoric animals. That's, that's very obvious, and there's so many issues covered, but one that I think is profoundly relevant today in so many ways... Uh, for us as well as for um, the animal kingdom. Every one of us that fell was a disaster, a repository of wisdom and ancestral memory stretching back tens of thousands of your so-called years. It's true what you say, after all, we do not forget. We cannot. When one of us dies, the experiences of thousands disappear with them. Relevant uh, in many ways. Uh, Chris, you might like to elaborate. Yes, I'm, I'm fascinated with the idea of memory and how memory works and um, uh, deep time and how we're very linked to the past, perhaps much more so than we like to acknowledge. And certainly with we are complicit in um, many things that have happened in the past and we've never really paid for those things, I, I think. And one of them is to do with um, the natural world and the... We're living the legacy now of um, the actions of our forebears um, hundreds and sometimes thousands of years ago. Um, the mammoth, um, there used to be tens of millions of mammoths, for example, and other you know, huge creatures, bison and so on, that roamed the earth uh, encircled by the great steppe in the, in, the, in the north of the world, which was a, a dry and cold place. And essentially it was the earth's refrigerator. And then we turned up and we killed them all all of them, and um, we ate them, and we made thrones out of their bones, and we wore their skins, and then it started to get warm, and um, the landscape changed dramatically. And what's bizarre is that um, now we're trying to um, correct the mistakes of the past, 
um, by cloning these creatures back to life. That's a, a very um, active thing that's happening and this is investigated a little bit in the book and I've been looking at it um, a, lot, a lot more depth ever since. We could actually see the mammoth returning to the world um, within the next year or two. Um, and the idea being to try and correct the mistakes, to build a great herd of them, release them in Siberia and rewilded areas of Siberia where they will stomp down the, the snow, try and restore the melting permafrost and buy us some time. So I, I think it's fascinating to think of um, uh, our memories and um, our links to the past and how we, they're never really severed. Um, we, mm. we have that within us and um, whether we understand it or not. And it's a very difficult thing to get your head around. Mm, it is. Um, a little later in the book, and uh, this inevitably crops up when we, when we go back into the, the ages uh, before the Bible. I'll just quote you a couple of sentences. Ironically, the idea of the earth being much older than the Bible claimed had taken root in the writings of Jefferson's rival, Lecomte de Buffon. Um, it, it must be confronting to people when we... Um, we we look at the the length of duration of Earth compared with what uh, uh, books like the Bible tell us. It was only a few hundred years ago, Henry, that people believed that the Earth was six thousand years old, and um, in the early eighteen hundreds, um, men of science, such as Comte de Buffon or uh, Georges Cuvier, the father of modern paleontology, they were also men of faith, and that was very common and. They were constantly trying to reconcile their their religious beliefs with their um, scientific discoveries. Um, a lot of creatures were being dug up out of the ground at that time that were clearly much older than 6,000 years old. And it was a huge challenge for them to uh, adapt their thinking uh, and retain their faith. Some of them did it very successfully. They were able to say, well, okay, the Bible didn't get that right. There, there are clearly creatures that are tens of thousands, if not millions of years old, that means the Earth was around for a long time before we got here. We have to try and um, come to terms with that. But there were many who just refused to accept it. And Georges Cuvier, is a, I mean, his name's on the, inscribed on the base of the Eiffel Tower. And he was a very divisive figure in the scientific community. He proposed, that, the first person to propose that there was an age of reptiles that predated the age of man. And that they had lived for a very long time, much longer than we had on the Earth and they were destroyed in some catastrophe. And he was on the money with that, but he was ridiculed at the time for saying that. Mm -hmm. People thought he was a lunatic. Um, and he had other theories that were about scientific racism, about the being three races of man, the Mongolian, the Ethiopian, and the Caucasian, that unfortunately have endured in some scientific thought and, uh, and layman thought ever since, and have been quite damaging. So it's a very interesting period of history where people were trying to reassess what they believed um, because of the evidence that's being presented to them before their own eyes. Um, and this were, these were men of science doing this. Absolutely. Uh, the last one that I'll quote, um, your Irish background obviously has to surface in the book somewhere I'd be disappointed if it didn't Chris but there's a story there where there was a song which is uh, still played in this hummed in the uh, public houses of Ireland and you quote the first verse of it when St Patrick this order established he called us the monks of the screw good rules good rules he revealed to our abbot to guide us in what we should do 
But first he replenished our fountain with liquor, the best in the sky, and he said on the word of a saint that the fountain should never run dry. Why did you put that in the book? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I... I'm obviously Irish and grew up there, and, uh, and um, I, it's quite hard for me to not have some references to Ireland in my work. Um, and it was fun for me to have a passage set in Ireland around about the Second Irish Rebellion. Um, but I just thought it was beautiful that there were all these old poems and songs written about people from that time that are that still endure today, that um, people still have that romantic idea of Ireland, and we all still have that, even if we haven't lived there anymore. Um, and the truth about Ireland is that um, uh, it's maybe not as, um, as as nice as we imagine it to be. <laughs> um, it's it's a bit of a nation of alcoholic misanthropes, really, and um, and it rains a lot there. So um, I I love to write about Ireland, but I also love to puncture a little bit of the um, romanticism of Ireland and remind people that. Um, you know, Ireland hasn't changed very much for a very long time, and um, certainly you visit my parents who are quite, quite elderly, but still still banging on, and they live in a small town outside of Belfast, and it is literally like going back in time when you visit them. Um, my father looks like something from the um, 1800s, um, and, and part of Game of Thrones was shot in their time, and I'm surprised they didn't just... Um, cast my father as an, an extra um, <laughs> a villager sitting there puffing on his pipe which he already he, he can bring his own pipe to the set um, you know he just looks like he's from a, a bygone age so um, for me Ireland um, hasn't changed much in a long time <laughs> <laughs> oh wonderful Chris time's got away from us so there's so much more we could talk about and it'd be Wonderful just to have you on the program uh, in the future um, if you had the time to talk about so many things. Can I congratulate you on not just Mammoth but um, the many areas in which you've been very influential, I'd say, in in having people think about serious things and in, and, and in the most enjoyable way often. Oh, thank you, Henry. I, I do my best to um, bring my own unique um, line of thought to uh, life as a life as an Australian. Absolutely. Uh, that was Chris Flynn, listeners. Um, excellent author, Mammoth. That's a great read. A mammoth changed science, religion and the course of human history. Is he now the one to save us all? It's a good question to frame the reading of an excellent book uh, that will both entertain you and make you think. Published by University of Queensland Press, thirty two ninety nine recommended retail price. We'll take a short break, listeners. Don't go away. Mm-hmm. 